BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing, and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, this will be a lot of fun. Calista and I watch Brian Kilmeade regularly. He is probably one of the busiest people in television and radio today. Most of you know him from watching him on Fox and Friends. He is a co-host. He also has a nationally syndicated three-hour radio program on Fox News Radio, cleverly called The Brian Kilmeade Show. In addition to that, he is the author of six books, and I'm sort of envious here, Five of them New York Times bestsellers. They sold over two and a half million copies. His most recent book, which is currently number eight on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list, is entitled The President and the Freedom Fighter. I don't know anybody who's done more to popularize and bring American history alive than Brian. This new book, The President and the Freedom Fighter, tells the little known story of how President Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass moved from strong disagreement to friendship and in the process changed the course of American history. So I'm really pleased to welcome somebody who's doing so much for history and so much for America, Brian Kilmeade. Brian, thank you for joining me. Dude, I appreciate it. I cannot wait to talk to you about this because I know this is your area of expertise in your passion. We're going to get to that in a minute, but now that I've got you, I have to ask a couple things about your past. I did not know until we prepared for this that you spent a decade as a stand-up comedian. Yeah, while doing everything else, doing all sports radio and doing news out in Ontario. I actually started three years after college because I was doing these stand-ups out in the field for Channel One, and they were handing me these scripts and I wasn't able to memorize them. 
And I also felt like I was better not memorizing things. I was better on my feet. So I said, well, how do I get better at memorizing at the same time, get better on my feet while waiting for that perfect job to come along? So I decided I'm going to sign up for a comedy class that ended with a performance. After I was done, I had about 10 contacts, friends that went through this eight weeks or 12 weeks with me. And I said, let's get together and write. And we used to write for each other. And then I kept doing it. Then I moved out to L.A. and I kept doing it. But it was all towards being a better broadcaster and just challenging myself to be able to go up in front of strangers in adverse conditions and see if you could pull something off. But I was never Seinfeld. I've always been fascinated with comedy, and many, many years ago, read Steve Allen's remarkable book on the funny men. What do you think is the biggest thing you learn from doing comedy? Number one, to stay in the room, to listen to the audience. So if you go up there and you feel you got great material, and maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if the audience is not listening, if you don't understand what they're giving you back, I'm not talking about the heckler, like, are they making eye contact with you? Are you in the room? If something does happen, do you respond? One of the best lessons I learned is be in the room. And Newt, that sets me up so perfect for a morning show and a radio show because you got to react to not only breaking news, but a crew member drops a camera, somebody rushes the set, or in your ear, they're asking you something while I'm talking to Newt Gingrich, who's got a new book out. So you've got to react to what's happening. You don't go into it like a show, like a vaudeville show or like a play. This is a living, breathing slice of life, even though you intend to get through it in a certain way. You have to respond to the room. I think that was the best thing I learned. That's something that jazz musicians learn, too. Where a classical musician plays to the music, the jazz musician in many ways plays to the audience. And it's very similar to being a comedian in that sense. You grew up in Massapequa, New York, on Long Island. Many people know the Baldwins all grew up there, and you're close in age to Alex's younger brother, Wim. I'm curious, did you know any of the Baldwins growing up? Yeah, wow, you did your research. So... In fact, I just got off the phone, was going back and forth with Danny Baldwin. So I knew Danny, I always thought was the oldest. He graduated in 79, and everybody knew the Baldwin family. And then Billy was a year older than me. He graduated probably 81. I graduated in 82. And then Stephen is two years younger than me. And I didn't know there was an Alec until my wife and I went to the same high school, Massapequa High School. It was so big at the time, they divided the schools into Burnham, Massapequa. Now, Mr. Baldwin, the Baldwin dad, taught at Massapequa. He was, I think, one of the first teachers hired. And then the kids all went to Burnham. So our town was divided in half, and so was the Baldwin family. And it was like a bitter Mets-Yankees-Jets-Giants rivalry. I mean, you hated these people when you were in high school because you just had to beat them. And you would still go to the county finals. Like one school would always go to the county finals. That's how talented athletics they were. But Mr. Baldwin was a football coach. But for Mr. Baldwin, he was a summer creation thing. So teachers were always looking to make extra money tutoring or doing lifeguarding or doing something. He ran summer recreation where you got all the kids in the neighborhood would go down to a local grammar school by you. And you'd have one or two teachers running it. And Mr. Baldwin was this big guy. He was probably 260, six foot, six one. And he looked like he was made out of steel. He was a little heavy, but he just looked like an offensive lineman. And he was the nicest guy. I mean, just the nicest guy. He made such an impact. So for three months every year for about five years, that's where I went from like fourth grade to ninth grade. And I got to know those guys a little. Danny was the crazy one. Danny went through, even though he went right and got one of those TV series with Richard Belzer, he had a huge drug and alcohol problem. And he just did a documentary how he got out of it and how he's trying to help other people through it. And Alec is actually is in it, and so is Billy. 
And then Steven had his moment, and Alec, we all know, and Jerry Seinfeld's dad was the first guy that ever hired me. I was 13 years old, and I decided I want to get a job. He had a sign shop down the block. Jerry was not famous, but Mr. Seinfeld would paint himself on all the signs. So he'd make signs for the whole town, and it would say Cal Signs at the bottom. So I said, I don't have no artistic ability, but I'll work. So I'm 13 years old. I walked in, and he said, what do you do? And I go, I'll work. I'll hold the ladder. I'll go out on your shoots. I'll help put signs up. He goes, okay, come every Saturday. And I came every Saturday for probably two years. And one day, he was spray painting. It looked like a huge paper bag. Jerry's on The Tonight Show tonight. Watch. And I said, who's Jerry? And he said, that's my son. And I go, what does your son do? He's like, he's a comedian. I go, wow, he's on The Tonight Show? He's got to be good. And I'm thinking to myself, but there's no way he's funny. And then sure enough, I was probably in eighth grade, ninth grade, and I said, can I watch The Tonight Show? And I watched Jerry kill Carson call him over, and Carson goes to him. He goes, so first question, I swear to God, what did your parents say when you told them you wanted to be a stand-up comedian? They looked at me, and they said, we'll be right back. They walked out of the room and came back, and they said, we will support you whenever you do, but I've talked to your mother. We don't think you're very funny. <laughs> I laughed so hard. I'm thinking to myself, I don't think they're funny. Your son's funny. I just thought they had it totally backwards, and that was the first time People on TV connected with my real life, that moment. And I go, wow, it's possible. You know, it's possible to be that guy asking the questions, to know the guy that's being asked the questions. The more I thought about it, that was like a significant moment. It's interesting to me because you still live in your hometown, you and your wife and your three kids, and you sort of come across as a down-home kind of guy. You've had all these successes, but you don't come across like it made you a celebrity, even though you clearly are. Yeah, I mean, my thing is, it took me 12 years to get to Fox. And when I got to Fox, no one knew what it was, but I knew it was a great place. I could tell it was like walking into Yankee Stadium when they were named the Highlanders. I thought this franchise is going to transform and Roger Ailes is at the head of it. And when he started putting up headlines of people that hated us and predicted loss, I had such a sports background, not that I was a great athlete, but I was a dedicated athlete through college, soccer, and we were always the underdog. And he's like, listen, it's USA Today, the cover. One thing we know for sure, Fox will not be successful. And dude, you've been in the newsroom. You remember. Were you speaker when I got hired? Yeah, you were. All these headlines. I go, wait a second. Instead of running from bad headlines, he would entertain it. And that attitude of working harder, overcoming things, that underdog attitude was the same thing I was used to in sports. And everybody to a person including Bill O'Reilly, I think got successful at Fox with Fox. The reason I will give myself credit is I realize that Fox would be successful without me. So hold on tight and do everything you can to stay. A lot of people feel as though they get too big and they think they could do it on their own. And I realize it's the vehicle that gives me the opportunity to get in front of people and the philosophy. Because I knew what it was like before I got to Fox. The most I ever made was probably $30,000 a year. And then I had to work on the side and do freelance stuff. So in my head, I'm still that same guy. I can tell from having been with you on the set, having been with you on your radio show, you are that guy. I mean, you're 100% a real person. And it's, I think, very refreshing. But I do want to take you back to one sports thing you were talking about. It's really interesting to me, having watched you on Fox & Friends, that you played soccer for years, both in high school and in college, and 
that was really your background. And then you ended up really as a sports reporter and finally ended up co-hosting the Jim Brown show. What was that like? I mean, talk about a guy who was a historic figure. It was unbelievable. And you talk about visualization. No one's ever asked me that, by the way. I brought it up on my own when people ask about my background, but you're the only one I think to ever ask me that. And you had to go back to 1992 or three. That's when I first met him. So I'm going out to California and my dad owned a bar in Manhasset and Jim Brown was from Manhasset, Long Island. And he used to come down and talk about two people, Lyle Alzado's from Manhasset and Jim Brown. So he used to tell me, because Jim Brown's last year was the year I was born in 64, the best athlete he's ever seen, the best football player by far is Jim Brown. He's from Manhasset. And I watched Jim Brown say a bunch of leaders in the Manhasset community came together because he was living above a second floor with his mom, who was a maid. And he was such a good athlete and a great kid. They pulled their money together and tried to get him recruited. Syracuse showed interest, but they had no money. So they told Jim Brown he got a full ride. But what they did is they pulled their money and they paid for it because they knew the minute he got in front of these coaches that he was going to impress. But the first year, these townspeople in a mostly white community pulled their money together to get Jim Brown up there. So he went in there and he killed. At the same time, he would tell me, I travel around down south, Syracuse, and they would say, oh yeah, the black players got to stay in that hotel, the white players stay in this hotel. And his coach invariably would say, no, we're all staying in the black hotel. And he knew kindness, but he also knew racial division. And he never wanted to talk sports, although he would. He was a running back freak. I remember he gave me the rundown on Marshall Falk while Marshall Falk was at San Diego State in a way I never thought was possible. And we would go talk about life. He would say to me, Brian, what does it mean to be Catholic? That's how we'd start the show. He would say, as a white guy, how did you view black people? And I loved it. But the first person he was put to with was Jewish. And he'd say, what does it mean to be a Jew? And that person was offended and they complained to the station. But that's the way Jim was. Jim was deep. He treated everyone equally, still does, treats everyone equally. Most of his friends were celebrities for a while or great athletes. He doesn't care. He was into going into gangs and giving black kids without parents and family, wayward kids, a second chance, set up their prison program. But the main thing is when I go out to California, I drive across country and I brought two books with me and I only opened up one, Larry Bird and Jim Brown. And I opened up Jim Brown. And as soon as I saw all the connections, all the stories that my dad told me came into fray, I said, I got to meet this guy. And within one year, I'm sitting with the program director and they go, we got to diversify our weekend programming. Who do you have in mind? I go, Jim Brown lives right here in Los Angeles, right by AM 670. And I go, I think I know how to get a hold of him. So they go, okay. So I actually wrote him a letter. He said, I'd love to do something. And they gave it to somebody else to host. That person bombed out because he was asking too many personal questions about their religion and whiteness. And I jumped in. And then we had a friendship. We have a friendship to this day. And every time I go out there, I bring my whole family. He has kids now that are in college. Monique is somebody I always connect with every Super Bowl. And Jim's 85 now, having trouble getting around, but he's all there. And he was a Trump fan. He goes, I'm not Republican or Democrat, but Obama never contacted me for eight years. And I tried to contact him. He would send some staffer to get back in touch with me. As soon as I contacted the Trump team, not only did they get back to me, Donald Trump called him after he won the election and invited him to Trump Tower. Now, he's in Los Angeles in Hollywood Hills. Everyone there hates Trump. He said, I want influence on America. He's going to give me influence. We always got along. He was respectful. I'm going. And anytime they talked about setting up these programs in communities and these center prying zones, 
Jim Brown had a seat at the table. That Kanye West circus was a problem for Jim because he was a part of it. That's not who he is when Kanye West lost it. Jim Brown was in the Oval Office at the time. But Jim Brown's a dead serious person. He would point to a bunch of kids. He goes, do you think they care that I was a football player? They care that I care about them. That's why they're here. They don't even know what I do. You know, we point to a bunch of 10-year-olds. And I just saw somebody who achieved greatness at 30 and his best work was the next 40 years. And I'm not saying he was perfect, but the way he treated everyone as if they had a story and he cared, I think taught me a lot. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids, but I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. With everything else you're doing, you start writing books about history. What led you to decide that you wanted to share your love of history with the American people? Well, the first thing I did is the games do count. It's how you play the game. I thought sports and life, because I didn't become a professional player, and most people don't, that I waste my time playing from 5 to 21 a game and playing 300 days a year. Imagine trying everything you can and not being great. And I really, I got to come up and say, life's not fair. Get over it. And I thought that was a book, The Games Do Count, for all the people like 
George H.W. Bush, Jack Welch, Oliver North, who was a boxer. Everyone had a sports story, but no one had a sports Hall of Fame career or a pro career. George Allen, who was a senator from Virginia, did 72 interviews, most of them were political figures that you'd recognize, about how they dealt with failure and how it helped them later on. And then it's how you play the game. I wanted to believe the values and ethics belong in sports. And that's why I wanted to prove that Joe Montana belonged in the same book as The Rock, who never went pro, never went past the University of Miami, because if you don't know values and ethics, by the time you're 30 and done, you're not going to be a great person. And most of those people I did 92 are. Now, it led me when I was doing historical figures like George Patton and Abraham Lincoln and tried to put them into the book, It's How You Play the Game, and those sports stories, Ronald Reagan too, what they learned in sports when they didn't go pro and how it helped them later on, that really got me intrigued with history. And this other book that I read that you may have read, Harry Truman wrote a book, not about himself, but about other historical figures. And he didn't write about Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence and won the Barbary Wars. You know what he wrote about? Thomas Jefferson was about 6'3 with freckles was very lean, would ride a horse as fast as he can every morning to wake up. George Washington was a guy who was very self-conscious about his education compared to the other founding fathers. He also had a self-consciousness about his teeth, where he had teeth that were put in his mouth that not only caused him pain, it caused him embarrassment. I go, wait a second. These iconic figures that belong on the sides of mountains were human beings? This guy had freckles? You know, James Madison was a sickly guy, five foot two inch, not a great leader, but a great intellect. And his relationship with James Monroe, as well as Jefferson, was special. And I heard about these rivalries and these human beings. I go, I have to find out more. And that started my passion for reading these profiles. David McCullough is Truman. So Truman wrote the book and he did about 20 famous figures and what they were like as people. And that whet my appetite for it. And then one day... Bill O'Reilly started writing these history books, and you started writing history books, and they became so real to the general population, not to Harvard professors. It kept moving. It was accurate. And man, I had all these people talking to me about it. So I had this one story, George Washington's Secret Six, I looked at for 20 years. And I think I might have told you this. I live on Long Island, went to Long Island University, and I did not know George Washington had a spy ring that functioned for three and a half years, without which we don't win the Revolutionary War. When I told Bill O'Reilly that, he said, you should write that book. I never heard of it either. And he kind of helped me through it. And then after that one led to Jefferson, and I wanted to find out something not plowed ground with Jefferson, led me to the Tripoli Pirates. Andrew Jackson, they said that we didn't have to fight the Battle of New Orleans. As you know, we did. And I proved it in that. And we got documentation from England that said they were going to abrogate the Treaty of Ghent. And they were going to stop us from growing past the Mississippi, proved that Napoleon had no right to flip us that property. And then led me to Sam Houston because I never knew much about Texas, but Fox Nation sent me down there to do a bunch of features. And then the more I heard about the Alamo, I always say, what happened next? And I thought I had an angle there that led me to this one. That's great. So now you picked, I think, a fascinating topic. I think Frederick Douglass is somebody Americans should know much more about. But what led you to decide to write about Lincoln and Douglass and their relationship? Intimidation. I read these books on Lincoln, and they're so good. And I read the David Blight book on Frederick Douglass, and I didn't think I could do better. I know I couldn't. Plus, it takes five, ten years to do that. And I need an angle in this. I want to tackle race. I want to prove to everybody that when you have a problem with CRT or 1619, it doesn't mean we're denying slavery was evil and America's original sin. But we could tell the story accurately and how these two self-made men could be an example to others, even though no one can match their intellect. I get it. 
but maybe by looking at their life and outlining it in an accessible way and how they finally came together at the end to move us in a way that probably no two other people could have. I go, what if I tell that story in a compelling way? I leave out the turning of the leaves and the speed of the wind, and I get right to the point. And if I tell it in a compelling way, you might want to pick up a Lincoln book after, I hope, and a Frederick Douglass biography, I hope. But I want to just focus on how they came up, what was happening in America, the Civil War backdrop, and how they ultimately came together at the end. And then Fox let me do a special on it. It aired at 10 o'clock on Sunday, the first week of November. And that's on Fox Nation, too. So what was the biggest surprise to you in studying these two guys together? Number one, here is a time in which we're watching what's happening in Virginia and we're seeing the education and the curriculum. What if I told you that they would kill to argue about curriculum because they couldn't get into school? The thirst to learn. And I said to myself, where do they learn that? You know Lincoln's dad didn't want him to learn. He said, why are you wasting your time learning? Books aren't going to do you any good. You know, pick up a shovel. And Frederick Douglass, you would go to jail if you were caught teaching him to read and write. But they would not be denied. It also taught me that this unbelievable American spirit, where even for a slave, he saw opportunity. He saw, this is wrong. I know what America's promise is, the soon as he be able to read. And the more he read, the more he opened up his mind, the smarter he got, the more he knew he had to learn. Isn't that what we try to tell our kids all the time? The more you know, the more you'll realize there's so much more to know. And their thirst for learning and their appreciation for learning, while I'm going through the news with CRT, 1619, now governor-elect Yunkin, and they're fighting for what kids are taught, Frederick Douglass was running errands for white kids in an effort to do their homework. Please explain to me your homework. I'd love to do it. And if those kids got caught, even when he wrote his biography, if those kids got caught helping Frederick Douglass, who has now escaped to freedom, they would be arrested. So then there's Lincoln going all around teaching himself to read and write and exercising his mind. Still back then in frontier America, there was a sense of a land of opportunity. And that's what I thought was great. And also, Newt, if you're Frederick Douglass and you were born a slave and you're making speeches and you're feeling the tension even in the North, and then you go over to England and Germany and Scotland and you're treated like royalty, you would not blame Frederick Douglass for saying, I think I'll stay, I'll send for my family. Instead, he says, I'm coming back to free 4 million and tell 350,000 landowners, do something else and you better start paying for labor. I go, man, if I could help underline that story, it would be a privilege. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford 
Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health, but by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. When you look at the two of them, I mean, they're coming at this thing from a different angle. I mean, Douglas feels this enormous passion legitimately because people are in slavery every single day. Lincoln, on the other hand, is very cautious, particularly before the war, because he thinks it will lead to a war, which turned out to be true. But there's a tension, it seems to me, between sort of Douglas's calendar and Lincoln's calendar. Yes. You know, people sit at home and they go, you know, why did they pass this piece of legislation? I thought they went in there to make a difference. They don't realize that they have to deal with the game that's being played. How many delegates do you have from your party? How many senators do you have in your party? We're seeing this every day. Where is the country at the time? Are they willing to accept this type of change? Now, it's different that if you're a statesman that Lincoln knew and you're a person who's in charge of the country as opposed to an activist and an influencer like Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was aspiring, but he didn't have the power. He could influence, but he didn't have the keys to the car. Now, if Lincoln went at Douglass's speed, he'd have no country to govern, and he knew it. Frederick Douglass could not care less about the struggles that Lincoln had, because in his mind, my humble opinion, he knew what was going on in the South. Every day was hell. Every day was something that was intolerable. That's all he saw. What Lincoln said is, if I listen to this guy who's writing in the North Star paper, that he got funded and financed and wrote for every day. If I go by his pace, I'll have no country because the North was not ready to fight to free the slaves, but they eventually would. Timing was everything. And that's why Frederick Douglass didn't see it. But 10 years later, Newt, and I do my stand up at the end of the piece of the freedom statue, which is causing so much controversy of Lincoln standing tall and an African-American breaking free of his chains. And they thought this is a bad symbolism. Well, it was financed by freed slaves. And it was done by Thomas Ball, who the freed slaves asked to make a statue to commemorate the freedom that 
that Abraham Lincoln brought to the slaves and an African-American experience at the time, but it was Frederick Douglass who had dedicated it. If I could paraphrase, Douglass basically said, you know, by my standards, he was slow, he was plotting, he was meandering, but by the standards of the country at the time, he was swift, direct, and right on time. And he realized that 10 years after the assassination, that Lincoln was right, that it's different between a statesman and an activist, and a lecturer and an intellectual, as opposed to somebody who actually had the responsibility to represent an entire population, despite where his heart was. Was your view of Lincoln changed by this whole process of studying that relationship? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, much more nuanced. And, you know, I know all the stories of the Depression, the losing of two children. His wife was certainly taking that extremely hard. You know, the first thing I did to start is read every single speech he made. And I took notes on every single speech he made. In the beginning, Newt, you cringe where he says, I'm not saying the blacks and whites are equal. Everybody knows that whites are superior to blacks. And you go, oh, but he was a person of his time. And you watch him grow the more he knew. Now, the other thing that was the same thing with him and Benjamin Franklin. And I feel weird talking like this because you know all this 10 times over better than I do. So please excuse me. I'm just going to answer the question, but I know you know the answer. Trust me. I think on some of this stuff, you know far more than I do. And I'm listening just like everybody else in your audience. Well, he grew. He evolved. I mean, even Newt, you in your 30s and 40s, I picture you evolved. You might have a different feeling now, and you might think, wow, man, I wish I did this as speaker in retrospect. I mean, I know there's things that I regret every day that I think I grew. I hope I grew in this time, even on Fox. So you have Lincoln, who's emerging as a frontier lawyer, a one-term congressman, but he's constantly learning, constantly bouncing off ideas. And when you hear his speeches, he's like, every man deserves to be free, and he's got a great way to phrase it. But at the same time, he goes, I never said that blacks and whites should be able to marry. I never said that. And he's the same guy that said colonization. Well, that's the only thing is, this obviously is not going to work. I wish we never had a slave trade. So let's work out a program where we get some rich people to give some money together, and we send the black slaves down south into Africa. And it makes you cringe. This is our iconic guy, our most infamous president, but he grew And I will tell you for sure he grew, because the second campaign that Lincoln ran, it's almost the campaign of an abolitionist, where the first one, he was willing to cut a deal just to get the South back and say, I'll make the 13th Amendment slavery. We'll make it part of the Constitution, anything to not break up the Union. And that made Frederick Douglass almost want to leave the country apoplectic. This guy let us down. He lied to us. No, what he did first is try to save the country then I'll try to fix it, but I have nothing to fix right now. So I think the biggest surprise with Lincoln is how much he evolved. He always thought slaves should be free, never thought it was okay to take a liberty, always thought the enslaver was almost as compromised as the enslaved, because you lose part of your soul when you control another human being. But like Benjamin Franklin, who many people say was maybe the smartest person to ever live, who had slaves, he would grow to realize there's no difference in skin color. There's no educational deficit among people of different races. And he ended up an abolitionist. Do I judge Benjamin Franklin as a slave owner who grew up in this environment? Or do I judge him as a abolitionist? I do this thing called judging someone in their entirety. And I don't use the word judge. I use the word study because I want to learn from these people. 
I don't feel qualified to judge these people. What I found most astounding over the last few years is that all these people ripping down statues, making protests, hopping on our air, making decisions, they are actually judging these iconic people in our past instead of studying them and think, what can I learn? You know, how can I grow? And if you want to put a plaque that says former slave owner grew to an abolitionist, you put it on if you want. You know, you put that on with these sophisticated museums that we're in right now. But to me, the way Lincoln needed to grow to become the great emancipator, that stuck with me. And the fact is, if you want to know how, where Lincoln felt about blacks and whites, just look at the way he treated Frederick Douglass the last time they met. He gives his last inaugural address, and it was about 17 minutes, as you know, and it was about reconciliation and forgiveness. It wasn't about, hey, everybody, we won the war. Let's go grab a Confederate soldier and jail them. It was about coming back together, and that's exactly what Frederick Douglass wanted. So Douglass gets invited to the White House, to the ball. Lincoln looks up in a crowded room, and he says, according to Douglass, my friend Douglass, what did you think of the speech? And Douglas says, Mr. President, you got a room full of people, much more important than me. Don't worry about it. He says, Douglas, there's nobody whose opinion I care about more. What did you think of my speech? And he says, it's a sacred effort, Mr. President. That was their last exchange. I ask you, does that sound like a racist that was pandering? Or does that sound like a man who has sparred, disagreed, and worked together with an African-American leader who probably was en route to becoming the ultimate abolitionist before he was gunned down at 56. Yep, I think that's exactly right. And I think had he lived, we would have had a very different reconstruction. Lincoln was, in a way, gentle but very, very firm. And I think that, as Grant tried to do later, he would have been very aggressive. And tragically, he had a vice president who was very sympathetic to the slave owners and very disruptive and, in a sense, a great detour. But you've done a great job. I must say, all of your books do well because they're very good reading. They're great stories. You have the knack, and you've learned it from radio, from television, from being a comedian, if you will, as well as a reporter. And I just want to thank you for taking part of Christmas week to join us. As you know, Clist and I are big fans of yours personally, and we watch you, I think, literally almost every morning on Fox and Friends. And I want our listeners to know we're going to have a link to buy your book, The President and the Freedom Fighter, on our show page at newtsworld.com. And I want to wish you and your family a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Back at you. It's an exciting time, Newt. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for your interest and your kind words. Thank you to my guest, Brian Kilmeade. You can get a link to buy his new book, The President and the Freedom Fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com 
slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free at 